Okay. Um, so uh, last time we were together, we were finishing. Uh, we we were just going to jump into this uh, um, second half of the first verse here. The strangers scattered throughout. Well, let me just go ahead and read the first two verses here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience of the sprinkling of unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And so we're, we're talking now about this idea of the sojourners or the strangers who are scattered. And we read that word together, but let's go ahead and, uh, maybe we didn't, but let's go ahead and read it. Can anyone read me uh, the word as it's seen in the, in the text itself? Let me get rid of that other one. Audrey. Pretty close. Sophia, you want to clean it up a little bit? Diasporas, diasporas, dispersion, disperse, diasporas. So this is where we get that word dispersion from, and that's how um, I translated it as well as the ESV dispersion. How about the lexical form here? Lexical form simply means it's the the um, most basic, simple form. Generally, it's um, um, well, we won't go there. Audrey, go ahead. Good, diaspora, and I'd say diaspora, ah, uh, the ah, maybe diaspora, ah, but diaspora is how I would pronounce it, but uh, alpha being that last letter there, diaspora, um, noun, uh, again, the rest of this isn't going to make much of a difference to you, except that you'll notice it's singular, and this is an interesting thing, because it's, it's uh, if, if you look at the King James translate, uh, translation, the strangers scattered, and uh, it's, it's a singular noun that we're dealing with here. And so the idea of the dispersion is kind of an interesting thought as it's in the ESV um, because they see this as kind of an a, a entity. They're called the dispersion. And I can see that with, how, with, with the, the case of the noun here as a um, singular noun. But the definition would be a scattering, the scattering, the, the, the scattered group of people. And we see it only one other time in Scripture, and that's in the book of James. James, a servant of God. Oh, no, two other, excuse me. Um, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And so there it's talking about the tribes that are scattered. And it's probably because of the way these are, are translated. And in the context, they're a little clearer that the King James translates this context scattered. And I'm comfortable with the way King James translated it. I'm also comfortable with the way the ESV translated it. Um, and then the other one here is um, dispersed in John 7.35. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? Now, I put here at the bottom, it's perhaps worth noting that James was writing to this same general group of people. You see what James says here? He's writing to the, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's writing to the Jews who are in the dispersion and um, that same group of people. And these are the regions 
This is, um, you, you have up here the Black Sea. The Mediterranean would be right down here. Here's Galatia. So um, you'd have uh, Corinth and Thessalonica and all of Macedonia over here. And then you've got Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia. And that's the general area, the region that, that Peter was writing to. And this had a, a large number of Jews in it. Uh, notably as, as he's writing to them. Perhaps he had traveled to this area at some point as well. We know that Paul uh, hit several of these areas on his journeys, although southern Galatia and then western Asia and then a little bit of the northern area here is what Paul hit. Um, not really any of these names as we see them. That area had not been hit by him, at least in the, in the, the three missionary journeys we have record of. Questions on that? Okay, now as we continue this, we get to this, this statement here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what I really want to emphasize here as we look at this is, now we're going we're gonna to see much about this, but what I, I want you to see as an overarching thought is that Peter invokes all three persons of the Trinity here as he speaks of our election. And as one of the elect, and we've talked about elect, and I, I meant to bring up again, um, just for the, at least for, for record on, on the, um, the internet, that if you look at that word election, we mentioned it su uh, Sunday night. Let me, let me flip up there real quick. I know I'm jumping all over the place here. But on Sunday night, we mentioned that there's another word uh, uh, that's, uh, it's a different word from the word that we looked at already, elect. This is election. It's also a noun, but it's a little bit of a different um, word, ekloge. And this word election also means to pick out or to choose for oneself. And it's a, that, that descriptive word. It's used seven times. And in this context, we do find Israel explicitly mentioned as a part of God's election. Romans 9, 10, and 11. We find this. Um, no, Romans 9, 10, 11 is not the one. It's um, Romans eleven twenty eight down there that we find Israel, God, the, the scripture saying that, that the nation of Israel, they're enemies of Christians as pertaining to the gospel, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. And um, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we see um, that Isaac, we, we see the argument that it wasn't by um, Ishmael, but by Isaac that God chose. And the idea here being that, um, oh, no, 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 Jacob and Esau in this context. So it says, if I just read the verse, it'd probably make it more clear than me trying to describe it, huh? And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, this is Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So, of course, the scriptures tell us that Rebecca was confused when she felt these two twins fighting in her, her womb and the, the Lord said, there are two nations in your womb and they are, they'll, they'll fight one another and the elder shall serve the younger. And this is God electing Jacob above Esau, not to salvation, 
but to this purpose, to this promise, to be this one through whom the seed would come, through whom this nation would come. This one was going to be the elect. And that, that is the idea that God's purpose according to the election might stand even before they had done any good or evil, God had chosen the one through whom he knew he could work. Because Esau would be, as the scriptures say, a profane man. Um, Romans 11 speaks of an election of grace. Uh, Romans 11, 7, uh, This Israel hath not obtained what he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. That Israel has not found that promise, the, the, all of the promises that they've been seeking through their Messiah. They've not found their Messiah. They've not found the, the kingdom and uh, admittance, all of those things that they've been seeking for, but instead a, the election has found it. That group made up of both Jews and Gentiles who, when they get saved, enter into this elect group called the church. They have found it. Um, Romans eleven twenty eight. that's the one that calls Israel yet elect. And then uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Paul calls the Thessalonians, those who are elect, that they know their election of God. And then 2 Peter 1, 10, Peter exhorts them to make their calling and election sure. Uh, and then it's once translated chosen here in Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Does anyone know who that's speaking of? That's Paul, the apostle, before he was Paul. Um, God said he's a chosen vessel. He, I've got a plan for him. And uh, notice he is not a chosen vessel unto me to be saved. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He was elect unto a purpose. That's the theme of election, purpose. Okay, any questions on that? We're going backward instead of forward, right? So, for the sake at least of the audio, um, that needed to be mentioned. Uh, unless people are listening to Sunday nights too and then they'll get it. But Alright, so we talked about scattered and this is the area... Now let's talk about election, uh, not election, but uh, these three prepositions that are modifying the word elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, elect in sanctification of the Spirit, and elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this is fantastic because Peter is just being so thorough here. He's giving us the reference with re we're elect with reference to something, we're elect by means of something, and we're elect unto something. And he's giving us all of them. So as we look at the election that we have, we're going to get to see this beautiful 360 degree panorama of election because we're going to see the, the, the reference, we're going to see the means, and we're going to see the purpose of our election. And the first one we see here is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So as we look at the Trinity and all three members of the Trinity being invoked in our election, our election is, is found in the foreknowledge of God, or we might say by the will of God. That's the idea here, is that it's God's will that there would be this election according to God's foreknowledge. So 
Um, God the Father and the, and the Christian's election. Elect with reference to or by measure of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Can anybody um, give me the, read me the Greek word here. Audrey. Very good. Prognosin. Prognosin. Sound like a word that we, uh, prognosis, right? Prognosis is to what? If, if someone says that this, this was the prognosis. We've heard the word, right? You typically used in reference to a doctor, right? A doctor gives a prognosis. The idea there being that he's thinking he knows what is wrong. A prognosticator is someone who is thinking they know things that are somewhat of a mystery. Uh, oftentimes thought of as a future event, but it can just be a, a knowledge of, of the mysteries. You know, you come in with a stuffy nose and a fever. No one can see what's wrong with you. They can't, they, they don't just like put a little board over you and say, oh yeah, look, I can see the little viruses running around in there. Oh, viruses. You know, it's not like that. A, a doctor is looking at the symptoms and he's making a prognosis. You might say diagnosis. A diagnosis, which by the way, diagnosis, also a Greek word, but a prognosis is when, they, when, when they're, they're, it's a little bit more of a guess. Whereas a diagnosis is, yeah, I just took an x-ray and your femur is in two pieces. You know, that's a diagnosis. They, they've got that one down. They can see that. Prognosis, a little bit less sure what's going on there. But yeah, that's where this word prognosin comes from. And then uh, prognosis, uh, just the, that last word there or letter there that changes for the lexical form means foreknowledge or forethought. Now, this is interesting. If you look in Thayer's dictionary, he adds a prearrangement. This is foreordination or prearranging. That's not what this word means. There are many other Greek words that talk about things being prearranged. And this is one of the problems when you get to reform theology or Calvinism. They take foreknowledge and they believe that foreknowledge implicitly demands foreordination. That just because God knows something in the past and then it comes to pass or he knows something is going to happen and so he acts in reference to the reality that's going to happen, that means he made it happen. Which is absolutely a academic, a logical, but not a proper assumption. I can know something is going to happen without forcing it to happen. And I've given this illustration many times. If I got tomorrow's newspaper today, let's say I, uh, it's Saturday, because that's, that, that's the best one, right? If I got Sunday's newspaper on Saturday, and I'm reading it, and then I call you up, or I talk with you, and I say, yeah, the Vikings are going to win their game tomorrow, and they're going to win it uh, 21 to 17, and um, Teddy Bridgewater is going to throw this many yards, and he's going to uh, have this many touchdowns, and, and that's how the game is going to go. And then the next day you watch the game and you get to the end of the game and, and the score is 21-17. And you look at Teddy Bridgewater's stats and he's got the exact number of yards I said, the exact number of touchdowns I said. Now, you're going to come back to me and you're going to think what? 
somehow you knew what the outcome of the game was going to be. Right? That would be your thought. Somehow he knew. He's prophetic. He has a time machine. Something to that effect. You would, not, you would never logically assume that somehow I was the one pulling the strings to make it happen. You wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think that somehow I made it happen. You'd simply think that somehow I knew what was going to happen. So why do we, when it comes to the Bible, assume that because God knows things are going to happen, that that by default means he has to make them happen? As if we can't have a free will because God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. That's not the case. The fact that God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow doesn't invalidate the fact that he's letting me choose to do it. Right? He's still letting me choose to do it. He just knows it's going to happen. So when God calls us his elect, even if, as, as we consider the idea that we're elect from eternity past, that's right. Because God is above time. God is in the past, just like he's in the future. God created time. That means he's outside of time. Which means right now, while we're here, trying to get through just a couple of, of not even verses, we're trying to get through a couple of words here. God is already in eternity future with us rejoicing. We are already in eternity future with God around his throne rejoicing because God is everywhere. He is, he is beyond time. He is in, he, he, he's outside of time. And what that means is that God can know that I'm one of his elect before I'm born because he's sitting with me in glory already. But that doesn't mean he's forced me to be one of his elect. That doesn't mean that everyone else in the world that's not sitting with him in glory and eternity future is not there because God didn't choose them. And because God, they, they lost the spiritual lottery. And so now they're burning in hell for all eternity because God created them simply to do that. that it doesn't mean that. But this is what we do sometimes. And this is what Thayer did. He took the word foreknowledge and he said, so and this has a flavor of prearrangement. Well, not unless you impose that on it. That's not what the word means. The word means for no, not for ordain. So while foreknowledge may naturally lead to foreordination, they are not the same thing. This word does not imply that they are. Only two times in the New Testament, both translated foreknowledge. Acts 2.23 Him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, have ye taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So, he says here that Christ was delivered by the counsel and foreknowledge of God. That God knew it was going to happen, but then in this case, God did ordain it. Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to die. It had to happen. But that's not because of the foreknowledge, that's because of the counsel. The foreknowledge means he knew. The counsel means he worked it. And then our text here is where we see this word as well. So I just gave you some of this. Foreknowledge implies that God knows what will happen before it happens. And this is a, this is a given. God is all-knowing. He is omniscient, right? So this is a given in every circumstance. Nothing takes God by surprise. He is above time. He is outside of time. 
For ordination implies that God is choosing people for some prior purpose to the event itself, or some purpose prior to the event itself, excuse me. Now, God does do this, but only in limited circumstances and always with proper regard for the eternal decree that he has given man a free will. Okay? God does foreordain. He does. But he foreordains within the context of man's free will, not against or not removing or negating man's free will. Jeremiah 1.5. This is a common text that we find the idea of foreordination or sometimes called predestination. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Sanctified and ordained to be saved? To accept the revealed word of God by faith? No. You say, well, pastor, doesn't the fact that he was ordained to be a prophet demand, and a follower demand that he be foreordained to be a believer? No. God, from eternity, wherever, from eternity looks and sees a man who will believe. And he says, okay, that's a man that I can use. He's going to be my prophet. I am choosing him to be a prophet of God because of the choices that he will make. I know I can use him. I know he'll do what I need him to do. Make sense? Clears mud. So God knows Jeremiah, then chooses him to be a prophet. God foreknew the choices Jeremiah would make, and knowing that Jeremiah would choose the Lord, then foreordained him to be a prophet. Nothing implies for, uh, that God foreordained his faith. Now, again, this is all my interpretation. You could just as easily interpret predestination unto salvation into these things as I'm not... But then we come directly into all of the texts of Scripture that speak to man's free will and volition. And immediately we have a real problem, an inconsistency in interpretation and an inconsistency in understanding if we try to ignore man's volition while still propping up predestination here. Nelson. Oftentimes, yeah. And in, in, in cases like this, yes. There are certain ones where no. And we're going to see that. The word predestination, no, it's not just as easy to go either way. You have to read into it. But certain ones like this, yeah. Because you, you have to recognize that in order for Jeremiah to be chosen to be a prophet, he would have to come to become a follower of God. Now, we have the idea of, of unbelievers that could prophesy or Saul, you know, who, who had no interest in following the Lord that prophesied a couple weeks ago in our passage, but not to be the, the chosen prophet of God like Jeremiah is. That has to be a follower of God. So it's very easy in, in this passage to see that and to understand cause and effect and to interpret predestination onto cause, not just effect. 
So yes, and, and, and this is Hebrew, so it's a little more ambiguous than the Greek would be. But as we get to the Greek, and every time the word predestination, praorizo, is used, you can't get salvation out of it. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And we'll see that here. So, um, continuing briefly, Israel was an elect group initially made up of all believers. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 10. They were all baptized with the same baptism, right? They were all went through the Red Sea. They all followed the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. But with many of them, God was not pleased. And Paul uses that as a warning to us who are believers that we not follow after idols and, and, and things that would destroy us. But throughout their generations, they became a mixed multitude filled with many believers and unbelievers. Now, this didn't change their election because um, they were elect as a nation, but did change their capacity to fulfill their elected purpose because there were so few righteous left in the land. That's why God waited as long as he waited to send them into captivity. And then how, why he waited as long as he waited to set them aside is because he had the, he was waiting for the point when they could no, when they absolutely could no longer fulfill their elected purpose. And when they couldn't any longer, they were set aside and God brought in the church. And he did things differently with the church. See, in Israel, you were made one of the elect when you were circumcised. You weren't born one of the elect. You were made an elect at circumcision. It still wasn't your choice though, right? It was your parents' choice on the eighth day that you were circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, then you were cast out of the nation by law. You were supposed to be. I don't know if it ever happened. But you were supposed to be cast out of the nation because you were not a part of God's covenant. You were not part of God's elect group of people. Now, in the New Testament, the church is different. The church, you enter into that, that elect body through salvation. When you get saved, you enter into God's election. And that election was meant to replace Israel in that Israel failed to, to properly represent God to the world. And so now God says, I'm going to choose a group. And instead of having them be physically the elect and then ask them to enter into spiritual faith, and we talked about that in Galatians this past Sunday night, right? Instead of starting with, with the physical and then asking them to enter into the spiritual the elect group is going to be made up only of those who first enter in spiritually. And so you, you accept Christ, enter into his election, and now you are intended to fulfill the purpose that God has given. So the church is foreordained. The church is God's elect. We are God's elect by proxy of the fact that we are a part of the church. But we have not always... From eternity past, we've been God's elect in the, from the perspective that one day we would be saved. But we weren't chosen by God to be saved. We were just a part of this group, which is an elect group called the church that God knew we'd be a part of when we accept Jesus as our Savior. I'm going to... Um, We just need to take the battery out of that clock and pretend like it doesn't exist. Predestination. I want to talk about it.
We'll, we'll pick up next week with where foreordination for touches the church. Go ahead, Nelson. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. And, and this is another illustration that we could use, but we think of choosing, but what about, the, what about thinking of it this way, the chosen, the few, the proud, the Marines, right? They are the few and the proud the elect. Now, for the first 18 years of their lives, they weren't a part of that elect. They became a part of the elect when they earned the right to be one of the elect. Now, you look at the Marines and you could call them the elect, could you not? The chosen. They're the chosen ones. They're the ones who are, are that cream of the crop, if you want to call them that. They're the first in, the last out. They're those guys. They are the elect. Now, just because they are this chosen group doesn't mean that they had no part in becoming one of the chosen. Right? Nelson. Right. I would say so. Right. Yeah. The, yes. God, we can say it this way, that God chose us. You know, the scriptures tell us we love him because he first loved us. God initiates this relationship through love. Then God calls us. And we'll, we'll see that in Romans as we talk about predestination. God calls us. Um. For whom he did foreknow, he uh, also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Who he called, them he justified, and who he justified, he glorified. Here's the problem with the time element. This is the tricky thing. Yes, as you think of the Marine example, it's the time element. They, they wanted to become a Marine. They were accepted into boot camp. Then they showed themselves worthy through boot camp. And so they made it in and they became one of the chosen when they finally were, were sworn in as a Marine. Now, the, the relationship is a little bit different. God initiates contact with us through conviction of the Holy Spirit. God calls us. We respond to his call, at which point we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified and we become one of his elect. The difference is that God has this thing called foreknowledge. See, we're called... The adopted, right? We are, we, we are the adoption. We are saved. But as the scriptures speak of us being saved, many of the things that we're saved from, particularly, you know, as we think of salvation, it's actually a future thing. The adoption, the, the actual event, the adoption hasn't happened yet. The scriptures call us adopted, but the scriptures also say that the adoption, I've got it somewhere in here, I guess it's probably in the Holy Spirit part, to wit, the, oh boy, um, the adoption to wit the something of our, of our bodies, the 
Redemption? I think it is redemption of our bodies. Anyway, it's at the resurrection. The resurrection. When we receive our new bodies, that's the moment of adoption, actually, according to the scriptures. And yet we are adopted today because things are so established in the heavens. It's written in the heavens. Our name is already in the Lamb's book of life. So it's as good as happening today. We are as good as saved today. We are as good as adopted today, even though it's a future event. And so that's the kind of thing with election. Technically, and it's the same thing with Jesus being the only begotten son. Remember when we talked about that? Jesus called himself the only begotten son. The psalm said he was begotten, but what day did they say he would actually be begotten? The day he raised from the dead. Thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee, the day he was resurrected. So he didn't officially, in, in, in a timeline, become the only begotten son of God until the day he rose from the dead. But he could call himself the only begotten son of God in John chapter 3 because it was as good as done that it was going to happen. And so because God is outside of time, these labels can get confusing. You were the elect from the day you were born, but not because you had actually entered into the election, but because you were as good as going to enter into the election because you would be saved one day because God knew that because God is omniscient. But you didn't technically, officially become one of the elect until you exercised your volition and placed your full faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. And then you were justified and ushered into his elect. Did you have another question? Yes, we're talking positionally versus practically. Positionally, we are adopted, we are saved, we are all of that. Everything that the Bible says about us, we are already positionally there. But practically, these are things that will happen in, in the future. Um, we are not yet saved from, from our sin entirely, are we? We live fighting it every day. We're saved from the power of sin, we're saved from the penalty of sin, but we're not saved from the presence of sin. And yet I say I'm saved from my sins. And of course, that can mean many different things. The word saved in the scripture, by the way, means, can mean, in, in the New Testament, can mean so many different things. It's not always talking about being born again. And that covers a lot of potential problems right there. But positionally, we are saved. Positionally, we are justified. Positionally, we are sanctified. Positionally, we are already complete in Christ. We are already um, accepted among the, uh, in the beloved. We are already adopted. We are already all of these things positionally. And yet, some of them still have to happen yet, practically speaking, through the rapture, through the return of Christ, through the um, judgment seat through all of the events that are yet to take place. And this is where we can get things confused when we talk about election because the Bible does speak of us being the elect and talking about us being elect, um, uh, I, I don't want to take anything out of context here. We'll, we'll get there. Um, but see, Ephesians 1.5 says we've been predestinated unto the adoption of children. Of course, I'd say that's the church. The church has been chosen. Anyone that gets into the church is chosen to become, to be one of the adopted. 
Because if you're a part of the church, then you will be adopted. You're predestined. We're predestined to be adopted. These sorts of things. But it's, it's that kind of an idea that because God is outside of time and He sees us in, in a different way than we see ourselves. He doesn't think linearly like we do. And because of that, we can be regarded as having been the elect from the day we were born as long as we understand when we say that that it's not because God chose us and because we had no will in it. It's because God knew from eternity past the decisions that we'd make because He's sitting with us in eternity future, rejoicing, watching us as we rejoice around His throne. So yeah, a little bit mind-boggling there. But, but yeah, and, and we'll see when we hit predestination next week that it really is, in, in the Greek, it's quite clear that none of them actually speak of salvation. Okay, any other questions? Hope. So it's foreordained and unchangeable. Mm-hmm. Unchangeable? Um, well, for, to, to foreordain, you mean what does it mean? Or? No, if God foreordains something, is that then unchangeable? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, if, if he has ordained it, preordained it, predestined it, foreordained it, then yes, I would say that it is an unchangeable event. Now, we do see events in the scripture that God declares that do change. Um, Jonah sends him to Nineveh, and the only message, I don't know what all Jonah was supposed to say, but the only message he gave is in 40 days this city will be destroyed. He doesn't say anything about repent and God might spare you. As far as we know, at least on record, he doesn't say anything about if, if you repent, God might change his mind. Uh, all he says is, in 40 days, the city will be destroyed for its wickedness. And they tear their clothes and sit in sackcloth. And they've even got their cows. They've even got ashes on their cows, okay? This is real. This is legitimate. This is sincere. And God changes his mind. God has every prerogative to change his mind, to change his declarations. But I do believe, and we'll have to do a little bit more study, but I'm, I'm 99.9% sure that when, when we see that idea of foreordination or predestination, it's speaking of something that God has written in the heavens. Yeah. It's not speaking of something that God... And, and, and um... <laughs> um It's in one of the Romans, I, I think it was one of these up here, uh, the, one of the new election verses that I added said this. Um, no, it's not. Uh, in Romans chapter 11, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. It's what the scriptures tell us. When God promises, when God makes a, a declaration, a covenant, when he foreordains something, there's no repentance there. God repented of the evil that he was going to do to Nineveh. He made a declaration with the capacity of those, the, the free will of man to ch- change his direction. We see this with Moses as well. God says, I'm going to destroy those people and I'm going to make a new nation out of you. When they were down making the golden calf while Moses is up on the mount and Moses falls on his knees and he says, no, remember, remember your holiness. Remember... For your name's sake, don't do this. And God says, for your sake, Moses, I will not destroy them. So the intercession of Moses changed the direction that God was going to go. It didn't change him. It didn't change his character. 
It was simply the reality that an intercessor, a righteous intercessor, changed his mind. And so until the day we accept Christ as our Savior, now this is the thing, this, this is going to blow our minds even more. Yes, we're, we're, you, can, you can say that we're elect from the day we're born. You, you, can, you can say all of that because God knows. But until the day that I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am on a path to hell. I am on a path to hell. There's, there's no two ways about it. Now, the, the, the Calvinists wouldn't say that. They'd say that you're, you're ordained to heaven from the, from the day you're born and you're on a path to heaven even before you're saved because you're predestined to that. But that's not what the Scriptures tell us. The Scriptures tell us that, that they, sh- they share that, that passion that everybody who's not in Christ is on their way to hell. And so in our time realm, absolutely, when we are outside of Christ, even if we, we end up accepting Christ and so we're on our way to heaven, until the day we do that, we exercise our volition and accept the gift of Christ, we are on our way to hell. That is the path we're on. And our path changes. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, right? Second Corinthians 5.17. Things change the moment of salvation. And so, from that perspective, that earthly perspective, there's a change. Now, from God's perspective, things continue. It doesn't thwart His plan. It doesn't confuse Him. There's no plan B. Nothing ever has. Every change that's ever happened, when Nineveh repented, God was acting in consistency to His character but he was acting in response to their repentance, their volition. But God was not going to be thwarted in that, was he? He sent Jonah. Jonah said, no, I'm not going. God said, I'm using you, Jonah. Jonah says, no, so he runs the other way. God says, well, I'm not going to change your, I'm not going to tweak your mind and just make you go like a zombie, but I'm going to make circumstances so much so that you will repent and you'll go. So Jonah gets on the boat. The boat starts rocking and going crazy. And Jonah says, I know that this is God. I know what I need to do. What I need to do is repent and say, God, I'll go to Nineveh. He says, instead, throw me over the, throw me over the boat. If God can't have me, so I'm going to die. God can't have me if I'm dead. So they throw him over the boat. Ha ha, Jonah wins, right? No. Fish swallows him. God says, I'm going to let you be torn up by the juices of the belly of a fish until such time as you repent. Now, there's debate as to whether he died or didn't. He says that, you know, in his poetic cry to the Lord, he says, you brought me out of death. Um, some think he actually died and was resurrected in, in, in the, the belly of the fish. And, and literally, I know you, 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 you can die, but I'm just going to bring you back until you do what you're told to do. Um, I'm going to wait for your volition, but hey, at some point, I'm, I'm going to bring you to the point of relenting. Others... He just burned there in the belly for the three days. It could be either way. However, however it was, God brought him to the end of himself to where he finally was willing to exercise volition, at which time God's plan came back. The plan was to preach to Nineveh through Jonah and then they would be saved by their repentance because God knew what it would take to get Nineveh to repent and God knew what it would take to get Jonah to do it. Same with Paul, Saul on the road to Tarsus. Exemplary predestination, right? This man has always been chosen. Chosen what? To be a vessel to me to preach into the nations, not to be saved. But God says, I need this guy. I want this guy. I know what this guy can be. So he does what is necessary in order to bring Saul's volition into line with his own. And if that is blinding him on the road, 
and declaring to him that it's Jesus that's speaking, that was enough to convince Saul. But then you have those that will not, right? You have those that simply will not. Jesus cries to Jerusalem, 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 how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but ye would not. I wanted it, Jerusalem, but there is no way that I, God, within the context of your volition, can get through to you at this time. So you're out of luck. You harden yourself to the Lord and the Lord can either give up on you or will let you stay in your unbelief through your own volition. Now, this is why the seven years of tribulation is necessary for Israel. What will it take for God to bring the nation of Israel to a point where they're willing to exercise their volition. If all that God needed was for Israel to finally figure themselves out and God, then there's no free will, then God could have made Israel figure themselves out. But He didn't. Because He's going to use their volition. And what it's going to take, Romans 11 tells us right now, God is using the Gentiles to make them jealous, to make them envious. We've kind of, we have um, assumed their God. Then there's coming a day when God is going to put them through seven years of, of torment, terrible torment. Three years of peace, then three and a half years of, three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of torment. Torment like they've never seen before. And it's going to bring them to their knees, to where they're finally ready to exercise their volition and accept their Messiah. And so we see the interplay between God's sovereignty and free will of man. And it's there. Now, can we interpret all of that out? No. Some of it, most, a lot of it, yeah. You know, we can interpret a lot of the free will out of that stuff. We can't interpret it out of everything. Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I, but you would not. Can't interpret the free will out of that. Literally, the word there is, but you were not willing. You did not exercise your will. You would not exercise your will. It's the word fellow. It's the word will. Uh, You can't interpret it out of that one. But in a lot of cases, yeah, you can interpret the free will of man out and just say, this was all God. This was God doing this. In Nineveh's case, this was, you know, this was God. God knew, God foreordained, God predestined everything. But in doing so, I believe we're doing a disservice to what the scriptures teach about man's free will. And it doesn't have to be that way. And this is, where most, this is where most Reformed people come from. They read the text and they say, well, there's really no other option. And so they say, well, I guess we have to believe this even though it goes against all logic that we don't have free will. But I guess I have to believe it because that's what I'm reading in the Bible. But you don't have to read that into the Bible. The, the, the concept of, of man's free will is there. And it's evident if we're willing to see it. And then again, there's certain places where you just can't get around it, right? Um, but those are conveniently ignored. And, and that happens in every theological direction. The tough passages are typically conveniently ignored, right? Because they don't support your... In a lot of churches, listening to preaching is like watching a documentary, right? You've got, you've got something you're trying to prove and you spend an hour or two hours giving all of the conveniently perfect evidence that you're right, not really presenting the other side of the story. And that's, that's pretty typical. In this case, though, when we look at the other side of the story, 
it, we still can't get around the fact that there's a free will. Okay, wow. Other questions? This is great stuff. Uh, love Tuesdays. Okay, we'll be done for this evening, and we'll pick up there, and we'll be picking up with predestination itself next week.